All right, guys, um, jumping into Acts chapter 9 this morning, um, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to read Philippians 3 to kind of give you some context before we get there. But before we get there, I don't know about you, but I know in my life, and maybe you know somebody in your life, or maybe this person is you, but um, I, I've struggled with being prideful when I have no grounds to be prideful whatsoever in certain situations, right? If you've ever been like, hey, I can hit that softball, hey, I can, um, I can hit that golf ball, hey, I can race this person, I can beat my child up the stairs, I can... Um, I can do anything. I don't know. You just name it, okay? You've, you've, you've been super arrogant and prideful that you can do something, but in the back of your mind, you're like, why am I doing this? I know I can't do this. I, I was at a friend's house yesterday, and they had one of those little hoverboards. I was smart enough not to get on one of those things, okay? I've seen way too many Facebook videos of people face planting on those things. I'm, I've learned, okay? And so what's happened is, uh, have you ever thought that you were better at something than you really were? A couple of us, okay. At least we're at least we've learned our lessons. A couple of us, so and so I have a really good example of this. Okay, um, there's a picture I want to show you real quick. Um, this is a this is a mountain that I tried to climb one time. Um, four people from this church took a trip to Kenya um, to the um, the Samburu region of Kenya. It's in northern Kenya, and this is Mount Sabachi. Okay, if you go down that road and turn right, that you see down there. If you go about two or three more miles, you turn left and you go up behind that mountain. And we stayed in a little little area in that mountain that was kind of safe and tucked away from all the wild animals and stuff. And so at nighttime, we, we got there at nighttime in the middle of the night. And Chris Brown, the outplays bass, he went with me. Um, it went with us to, is on a trip and he'll tell you. Uh, but I'm not going to call him now. I'm going to just talk about me, okay? So this is what happened. So he'll, t- he'll, he'll verify this story if you need any kind of facts verified. And so what happened was, you know, we get there at night. It's in the middle of the night. And if you, we stop about where this picture is taken. And everybody's got to go to the bathroom because we've been driving for like eight hours or whatever. It gets dark. And so we get out and there's these people that are standing around. They're talking back and forth. And, and I'm getting out. By the, uh, I got to use the bathroom. So I, I use the bathroom on the side of the road like any Georgia redneck would do. And so then <laughs> what happens is these people say, get back in the truck. I was like, why? He says, there's a bull elephant right here, rampage. I'm like, okay, let's go. And so we get back in the thing, and we go back, we, we drive down the road, go back to, the, go back to our uh, place we're staying at, and we come out, and we get out the truck, and there's an elephant skull where we, where the, at the entrance of the place we're staying. I'm like, where are we at? And so we get up to the place, and at night we start hearing these things on the, on the side of this mountain screaming and hollering, and we ask the people, what is that? They said, that's the leopard chasing the baboons. I'm like, okay, great, night, good night. And so, so anyway, the, I can't remember the, the storyline because it's been a couple of years, but the ne- over the next couple of days, we look at that mountain and we hear about the shepherds, the, peop- the people, they traveled up and down that mountain twice a day because there's freshwater springs at the top of the mountain. This is a holy mountain in that area. And so they, they travel up and down with their goats to bring, get water and they come back down twice a day. And it takes two hours to get up and two hours to get down. Every time. And so I'm like, you know what, Chris? You know what, Justin and John? You know, let's go do this thing. So we get these herdsmen. They take us up the mountain. And I'm like thinking in my head, like, I got this. You know what I mean? 15 years ago, I'm in. I got this up top to bottom. But I wasn't thinking about all the food that I eaten the last 10 Thanksgivings or, you know, all the things that I had done wrong in my diet and all the things that I had done wrong by not going to the gym. And so I start, I start up the mountain. And me and Chris are the last two. Sorry, me. I'm the last one, okay? Sorry. <laughs> I'm not bringing Chris into the story. I was the last one up. And so these, these, uh, these, guys, these, these two guys were sitting there, and they were like, you know what? And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm having a hard time breathing. I'm like, bro, this is like the hardest thing I've ever done. And like, you know, you go to the, like, the mountains of here, like up in North Carolina or something. You have a trail. It's kind of like a nice incline. You go up the side of the mountain. 
And you have a little place where you can stop and rest if you want to. This thing was, I'm talking about a 5 on 12 pitch, and it was like no rest. Up, up, I mean, all the way up to the top of the mountain. So we get a maybe, I think it was probably about two hours in. It was probably about 20 minutes in. And I'm sitting on the side of a rock, literally, my, I, can feel, I can feel my heart beat on my eyeballs. It was like, <laughs> Lord have mercy. This is bad, okay? And so these, these guys that were, um, the, these guys that were the herdsmen that were looking at me like, what are you doing? We're not even half of the halfway mark. Let's go. And so the other two guys go on. Me and my friend go back to the, um, the place, and we go. We get some water. You know, we chill out. And so about an hour, hour later or so, the other guys come back down. They didn't make it all the way up either. And so we're, like, defeated. I'm like, my Lord. And so I, I made a pact. I was like, I'm going to get back and get on the Stairmaster. I'm going to get back, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to do this thing. And I, that was one of my New Year's resolutions two years ago. It never happened. But and so I was thinking with my 20-year-old mind, right? And, but climbing with my 36-year-old body. And I know what you're thinking that, Michael, you should have been able to do that at 36 too. Listen, you're, you gotta, I'm like, I'm out of shape, so whatever, okay? I'm working on it. It's, it's January, okay? So this is where we're gonna find Saul at today as we're jumping into Acts, or Acts chapter nine. He's thinking he's in one place, but in reality, he's blind, he's lost, and he's broken, and he's deceived. Because see, Paul was, or Saul was a Jew. Saul was a, a Roman citizen, which brought this, he was a perfect, he was in a perfect scenario in his life. He could go places other Jews couldn't go because of his Roman citizenship. He was a Pharisee. Um, he was a disciple of Gamaliel, who was known to be one of the wisest Jewish leaders of the day. Um, and you can read about Gamaliel and other um, secular texts that can tell you about his life and about what he stood for and about his his uh, um, contribution to Judaism. And so as you read Acts 1 to Acts 8, we see the church is starting to grow rapidly, right? We've, we've gone through eight chapters now, and the church, the gospel was spreading. It was moving into places that it once had not been, and Saul, being a Pharisee, was not okay with this. He was not okay with this because in his mind, this was blasphemous. This was going against God. This was, it went against his traditions. He was going to snuff this thing out no matter what the cost because it was going against God. And, in, and he thought that he was serving God the entire time that he was doing this, which is crazy. You're gonna read this in a second. And we read about, remember we read, we read about Stephen a few, a few months ago now, and, and Saul was there holding the clothes of the people, or the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. And a little side note for you guys who, are, um, who, who like to study a little bit deeper. Um, some of you may know this, but like Saul is Paul, okay? Saul is the apostle Paul, common church Theology or tradition tells you that Saul's name was changed to Paul because of this conversion. That's not accurate. I know I just messed up some of y'all's theology in here. That's just a romantic church speech that we like to talk about sometimes that Paul became, Saul became Paul when he got saved. That's not what happened. The Holy Spirit calls him Saul up until Acts 11. He's called Saul 11 more times in Acts near, after his conversion experience. Saul was the Hebrew name. Paul was the Roman or the Greek name. That's what it was. It's not Saul the bad guy. And Paul, the good guy, it's not what it is, okay? It's, just, it's, it's, it's the same guy. Sorry if I messed up y'all's day. But, but we can look in Philippians chapter three and we can find some context in Saul's life that proves that his confidence came from his flesh. He was confident because he knew a lot about scripture. He was confident because he followed the law flawlessly. He was confident because he was, he was um, condemning the church for this uprising by, this name, by this, these followers of this man named Jesus. 
And it, it, was his, it was his knowledge, it was his commitment to religion and to law, and all of those things had blinded him from what was really happening in, in the world. And, and he thought he was, belie- he, he was believing that he was pleasing Jesus, pleasing God, excuse me. And so you see in Philippians chapter 3, if you're there, Paul's showing what it means to know Christ. One of my favorite scriptures of all is in, in chapter 8 where it talks about everything's a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things. And so for knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that word know there in the Greek is gnosko. The word Greek in the Greek means gnosko. It means to, to know something, to know someone and to be known. To know and to be known. It's the same word that we use in the Greek for, for knowing one's spouse. If you're married in here, I hope that you know your spouse mentally, emotionally, physically, all, the, all around the, the whole realm of knowing your spouse is a very intimate word. And he knew how to play church. Paul knew how to go to the synagogue. He knew how to teach the word. He knew how to act in certain crowds. He knew how to, to be in certain places and certain times. He knew how to follow the rules and to follow, fall in line. And so this is the foundation that I want us to read in a, as we read this scripture. This is Paul in Philippians chapter 3. It says this. In addition, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is of a safeguard to, for you. Okay, for, verse 1 is a reminder. I've written three chapters so far, Philippians, that to, tells you what it means to follow Christ. And I want to write, write this again. I want to remind you again. Because it's no trouble for me because literally my job as a pastor is reminding you over and over and over again of who you are in Christ. That's the job of any pastor. Verse 2, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers, evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the, one, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have many reasons for confidence in the flesh. And so basically, watch out for the people who are religious. Watch out for the people who are saying, you need to follow this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule. Watch out for the people who are following the law rather than Jesus. Because if you follow Jesus, you'll follow the law. You follow Jesus. You let Jesus be the ruler and the authority in your life. And he said here, for we are the circumcision. This is a reflection back into the Old Testament when circumcision was a sign of the covenant that they had made with God. They were, they were people of God. And so we are the circumcision. What that means is we are the fulfillment of the sign of circumcision. We are the fulfillment because the Holy Spirit, you can look at Romans 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming in and, and circumcising our heart. And so no more do we mutilate the flesh, thank God, as a sign of our association with God. We have, a, we have another sign, which is the Holy Spirit. When we come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and starts to move and work. This is what he's talking about. He says, but if we are going by the law, that's good because I have it all together, is what Paul's saying. This is what he said, I have more. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is the law, blameless. Wow, Paul's the man here. So, But everything that was to gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Jesus. And all those things that I put up as like, as, as as kind of the standard of my life is now a loss. 
So my question as we jump in this morning, what have you set up as the standard? What in your life can you look to and say, this is how I know I'm successful. This is how I know that I've made it. We all have those things. Is it a certain amount of money? Is it a certain house? Is it a certain car? Is it a certain woman, a certain man, a certain amount of kids? What is it? Something in your life you have set up and to say, if I can get to that, then I'll make it. But Paul is saying, look, I did all those things perfectly. I had the perfect everything, and I followed it perfectly. And guess what? It's a loss compared to knowing Jesus. And so it's important that we see that. And as I read this passage, you know, I want us to, to, to use that as kind of the foundation of Acts chapter 9 as we look over there into there. So that's, this is our main text today, Acts chapter 9, verses 1. And we're going to read a lot of it, so buckle up and enjoy the ride, okay? So here we go. Verse 1. Everybody there? Touch your nose? No, I'm just kidding. Everybody there? I don't hear any pages turning. Here we go. So, now Saul was still breathing threats and murder, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he's, the reason it says still breathing is because back in Acts 8.3, back in Acts 7.58, all those things that Paul was doing, he was taking people out of their homes, he was um, killing people, he was, uh, he was jailing people, he was persecuting the church. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them to as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you have a pen, circle me. Why would he say me? Paul was not, Saul was not persecuting Jesus necessarily. Physically, he was persecuting the church. But if you look, this is Jesus associating himself with the body of Christ. You see that? Um, five, who are you, Lord? And if you circle that Lord verse, a lot of translations think that means actually more closely says, sir. It has a, he hasn't really said, Lord, it's like I'm submitting myself to you yet. This is like a sign of respect because this is a very, um, very big thing that he's looking at. All right, here we go. Jesus said, I'm Jesus, <clears throat> the one you're persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and through, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus. I love how he uses the word disciple and not Christian or, or follower. He's the disciple who was a student of Jesus in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul. Since he is praying there in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. So if you're like me, you'd be like, hold on a second, Lord. Give me just a second here. Lord, and Elijah answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument. Take my name to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. 
Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so you look further down the line here and you see Saul was spending time with the disciples. The disciples rejected him, but Barnabas brought him in. <clears throat> you see him in, the, in Jerusalem with the disciples and he, he did all these things. Of He was speaking boldly to the people. He was proclaiming Jesus. He was arguing with the Jews of proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And so you need to see that the reason why he was proclaiming, the reason why he was, he was showing the proof of who Jesus was. Thanks, brother. Needed that. Awkward silence. Cool. I hope that helps. So, so you see, the reason why he was going to these places and doing these things was because of, of, of the experience that he had with Jesus. And so you heard me a second ago ask you a question. What in your life can point to what God's done in your life? What has God done in your life? What has Jesus done in your life? Is there evidence of that in your life? And so as I read this scripture, there's a few things that stick out to me. Number one is, as I read about Saul, it shows me that no one is too far gone to be saved. You know what I mean? Like, no one is too far gone to be saved. Listen, every one of us at one point in your life has walked in spiritual darkness. Can we... Can we agree with that? I mean, we live in the Bible Belt, but can we agree with that? We've lived in spiritual darkness at one point in our life. You may not be, you may be doing that today. You may be here today living in spiritual darkness, not understanding why there's darkness, not understanding why you can't hear from God, not understanding why you can't hear the Lord speak to you when you read Scripture, not understanding why the Bible doesn't make sense, not understanding any of those things. Maybe you've done it for so long now that the darkness is what's normal. Maybe the darkness is what's normal in your life, and that's just what life is, is just living in darkness. Huh? It's just how, it's just my lot. This is just what I'm supposed to do now. Listen, no soul, as I read scripture, is too far gone for God to bring back. No heart is too hard for God to soften. No son, no daughter, no husband, no wife, no mother, no father, no brother, no sister, no friend is too lost for God to rescue. Saul is our example. He was killing the church. We're called to keep praying for God to do what only God can do because you can't save anyone. You cannot save anyone. I cannot save anyone. God saves. I'm faithful in prayer. I'm faithful in sharing. I don't care where you're at this morning, where you've been, what you've done, who you've done it with, how far you've gone. Look at Saul's life. Look at chapter 7, verse 58. If you're there, you can turn there, I don't, whatever. I'm not going to quote it. But in 758, Paul, he was dragging people out of their houses. As people were stoning Stephen outside the city, the witnesses were laying their coats at Saul's feet, and Saul was approving of his killings. He was overseeing the stoning of a church leader. That's pretty bad. Acts 8, 2 to 3, he was ravaging the church. He was dragging the men and the women out of their homes, killing them, putting them in prison. Acts 9, 1, he was breathing murderous threats to the church. So this tells me no one, and if I could yell, I would yell. No one is beyond the grace of God. 
no one is too far gone that God cannot bring him back to himself. This is the hope that's in the gospel. If you know the gospel, this is the hope that's in it. Jesus has made a way. God is still making a way. God is still working. This house has seen 23 salvations in a year. That means people are being brought back home. And we need to understand that the cross has spoken and it declares to all of us that nothing can keep a loving father from his children. That's good. Y'all hear that this morning? I don't care where you're at. He actively restores us back to a right relationship with God. The Bible says that we are made new in the sight of God if we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says that therefore, because of all these things, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In your life, has you, have you seen the new creation come alive? Have you seen the new man or the new woman come alive? The old has passed away and the new is coming. The new has come. And for, for those of us who are being saved in here, if you're a Christian in this room, this also creates an urgency in our hearts that we must live under. Because if all of this is true, then how can we stand by as people far from God perish apart from God? This has to create something that weighs on us. There's a weight if we believe the gospel. It's not something where we come in and the safety and everything's good now and I get to sit and live in freedom, which there is freedom, but there's also a way for my brother who's lost. There has to be. And how can we allow prayerlessness to infect our lives while people in our lives die without Christ? People need to see Jesus in us. They need to. They have to. We need to be on our knees in prayer. Guys, if you struggle with prayer, it's a strategy from the enemy because he knows it works. Listen, if God is the one who draws people to himself, which he is, then we have to pray like the persistent widow in Luke 18 and keep praying and keep praying and keep praying until the lost are found. We have to pray that the numb would be jolted back to life that for them to see the beauty of Jesus and that the numbness in us would die because this church is meant to be unified around his name. And we understand the consequences of rejecting Jesus and we're filled with the love of Jesus for other people. Persistent prayer will be our natural response. It's the only way, guys. If we could see what happens when we're praying, we would never stop praying. If you could see, if your eyes would open up and see, you would never, ever, ever stop praying because you would see the battle that's being waged in your life for what's happening around you. Do you have a saw in your life? Do you know someone in your life that's not saved? Do you? We all do. Pray. Jesus is faithful with the results. We must be faithful in obedience. That's it, man. Like Jesus is faithful with the results. We must be faithful with the obedience. And that leads me to my second thing I see in this passage. I see it in Saul and Ananias. The second thing is a disciple, as a disciple, obedience is never optional. I mean, I read that, I'm like, man, it's tough. Like obedience is never optional. But the American church has destroyed this, making Jesus optional, making following him optional. Excuse me, Jesus is optional, okay? You choose. But when you become a follower, 
being obedient to his word is, is not optional. It's a, it's a, it's a, it brings life and freedom. Because listen, guys, if, if you walked in here this morning, you say, hey, we're followers of Jesus, then that means in your life, there's an active motion into our lives that is moving towards the heart of God. There's an active motion in your life that is moving towards the heart of God. Ananias, listen, if you read Acts 9, Ananias, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, went to Saul, a murderer of Jesus' followers, to minister to the murderer. Does that make sense to anybody else in this room? No, it doesn't make sense to me at all. If, if I heard that in my prayers and my dreams, I'd be like, you sure about that? Am I hearing right? I must not be a Christian. Let me say it again. Let me get saved and pray again. That must not be right. That doesn't make sense. Listen, his father told him to. And so what did he do? He said, God, I heard about this guy. He's gonna kill me. And he says, go. He's my instrument. And so what did he do? He trusted the father. You trust and then you obey. Doing what you're told when you're told with the right attitude. That's, that's the definition of obedience that I love so much. Doing what you're told, when you're told, with the right attitude. Make sure my heart's right. Make sure, it's, make sure my heart is right because we talked about before that delayed obedience is disobedience. I'm going to do it later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push it off a little bit. Well, that's disobedience, right? Some of us are in here like, man, this is getting tight. Well, let me tell you, it's about to get tighter. Here we go. Can we just get real for a second? Can we do that? Yes? Okay, is that okay? Okay. If you're reading scripture, if you're, if you're saying, hey, I'm a Christian in this place, and you aren't following Jesus as Lord, then Jesus is not your savior. A lot of church attenders need to quit lying to people around them about who they serve. If you're reading your Bible, reading your Bible, and then actively not doing what it says because it's hard, or because it doesn't fit your agenda for life, can you really say you're following Jesus? As I'm reading this today, this past few weeks, or these past few weeks, reading through Acts, trying to prepare for this, this hurt me. Because I'm reading some of this, and I'm seeing holes in my life. I'm seeing holes in my leadership. I'm seeing holes in different areas of my life. I'm like, God, I'm, I'm trying, but I don't see. How do I, you know, but God is, God is a graceful God, but there is a blatant disobedience in the American church that has to stop, and we have to stop lying and saying we're following Jesus if we're not. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, let's just get real, because I want to be a church that real, is that's real, because if Jesus is Lord, then obedience is not debatable. He, he's either Lord or is he not? He's not. It's not, a, it's not a debate. It's not saying, oh, Jesus is my Lord. Well, is there any fruit in your life? No, why? you can't say Jesus is your Lord. So it's like you, you, if, if we took the American church and went back to Jerusalem in the early church where Saul was getting saved and we said, hey, we sit in there with the disciples and with Saul in that conversation, would they look at us and say, these, these guys are legit. These guys are following Jesus. These guys are being obedient to what God is saying. Or would they say, these guys have no idea what it means to follow Jesus. They're just following some fairy tale that somebody told them they should follow. Listen, we have to read the word and do what it says. You may say, well, I've never heard God speak to me before, Michael. Well, let me tell you what. The Bible is God's perfect revelation of himself to you and to me. We read this, we learn about God. We read this, we learn who God is. We understand what he's saying. In connection, we have a very simple formula when it comes to obedience. It's really simple. You open this Bible, you read some words, and then you go do what it says. It's easy. You read the Bible and you do what it says. And then guess what? You listen to Jesus as you pray and then you do what he says. And this is a foolproof equation because those two things never, never, never contradict, ever. It's important. A few questions for you to ask yourself. 
Is your life too busy for you to hear God? Is there margin in your life? Is there time that you're spending in the word? Or is there time that you're spending in prayer? And I'm not just talking about a five or a 10 minute devotional in the morning to make sure you, you're, you've checked it off the list. I'm talking about spending time with God, just saying, God, speak to me, please. I need to hear from you. You're my supply. You're my breath of life. I need to know all that you want me to know, God. I need you to empower me or I can't live. Is that our heart? Or are we just kind of getting by? Have you heard God speaking to your heart? The Bible says the spirit of God testifies with our spirit. The Bible says that we're sons and daughters. If he speaks to us, if we're, son, we're his sons and his daughters, Romans 8 is a great example of this. If you, will, you don't have to turn there, we'll put it on the screen for you. Romans 8, 14 through 17, look what it says. It says, for those who are led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. If, if children are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him. Listen, this Abba, this Father, this Daddy, this is intimate. This means we get to cry out to our Father and say, Lord, Lord, speak to me, guide me, show me. Lord, I just want to obey you. If you're going to say, hey, I follow Jesus, there has to be an active motion towards the heart of the Father. It says he will speak. It says he will guide. It says he will do these things. But the question turns back onto us. Are you listening? What's important in your life? Is this word important? Is the heart of the Father important? Is this mission important? This leads me to the third thing, the last thing. The most visible fruit of your salvation is your proclamation of the gospel. The most visible fruit of you being saved is you sharing the gospel with other people. We say here a lot of times that saved people care about the souls of lost people. If you're saved, that means you're usually going to share the gospel with other people. If you claim to be a Christian and have never shared the gospel with anyone, that concerns me. And it should concern you. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying it's just it should concern you. You should evaluate where you're at in that. I'm not talking about bringing somebody to connect group. I'm not talking about bringing somebody to church because you're just, you're just teeing the ball up for somebody else to do evangelism, which I like. But I'm talking about being so amazed at the gospel that we can't shut up about it. And what Jesus did for you and for me and having fellowship with him can you articulate what God's done in your life? Can you speak to what God has done? Is it amazing to you? Has it overwhelmed your soul? Has it changed your life? Has it changed your marriage? Has it changed your outlook on this world? Then go tell the world. If it's that awesome, go tell the world because how can they believe what it says in Romans 10 unless someone tells them? How can someone believe unless someone tells them? Acts 9 and verse 20 says, Saul immediately began preaching the gospel. What did he tell him? He's the son of God. The very thing that Saul had been telling him that he wasn't, he changed his tune after he met Jesus. This is a direct sign of repentance, a direct sign of a regenerate heart because one day he was persecuting the people for declaring Jesus as Lord. Now he's the one proclaiming Jesus as king. Verse 22, he grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is the miracle because Paul has spent his entire life 
learning about the Torah, learning about the things in the Old Testament, and learning all these things about Judaism. But Jesus showed him on that road to Damascus that he was the fulfillment of all the things that he was learning. And now he was able to prove to everyone that from front to back, the Bible is a revelation of who Jesus is. And he is a, and Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament talks about. This doesn't mean he was going to be arrogant or trying to win an argument. What this means is he was pleading with people to see, open your eyes, open your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is because he's the fulfillment of everything that I've been teaching. And then it says in verse 29 that everywhere he went, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. And because of all these things, later in that verse, later in that passage, it says, because of Saul's salvation, because of his obedience, because of his proclamation, many people were saved and the church grew. This has nothing to do with Saul, but everything to do with the strategic movement of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But hear this. Hear this this morning that you should never, ever, ever discount, ever discount what God can do with a life turned to him and surrender. Never. There's a story of a guy named Edward Kimball that I love to tell. Has anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? That's what I thought. It's okay. Most people never have heard of him because Kimball, he was a Sunday school teacher who not only prayed for the hyper boys in his class, but he also sought to win each one to the Lord personally. He decided he would be intentional with every single boy in that room. Surely he thought about throwing in the towel. If you've ever taught a Bible lesson to a young boy, you know what I'm talking about. You ever served any kids before? You know what we're talking about. It's like herding cats, right? One of those young boys in particular didn't seem to understand what the gospel was about. And so what did Kimball do? He went to the store where he was working and confronted him in the back room about his lack of understanding and the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The young man was Dwight L. Moody. You better heard Dwight L. Moody? Okay. In the stock room on that Saturday, he believed the gospel and received Jesus as a Savior. In his lifetime, Moody touched two continents for God with thousands professing Christ through his ministry. But the story doesn't end there, actually. This is where it begins. Under Moody, another man's heart was touched for the gospel, Wilbur Chapman. Anybody ever heard of him? Me either. Chapman became the evangelist who preached to the thousands. One day, a professional baseball player a day off and had a day off and attended one of Chapman's meetings, and thus Billy Sunday was converted. He was a professional baseball player. Sunday quit baseball and became part of Chapman's team. Then Chapman accepted a pastor at a large church, and Billy Sunday began his own evangelistic crusades. Another young man was converted whose name was Mordecai Ham. See where this is going? No, okay. I will get there. He was a scholarly, dignified gentleman. When Ham um, came to Charlotte, North Carolina, a young man then in high school vowed that he would not go here and preach. But Billy Frank, as he had called by his family, eventually went. That night, Billy Frank went and was intrigued by what he heard. Returning another night, he responded to the invitation and was converted. Billy Frank eventually became known as Billy Graham, the evangelist who preached to more people than any other person on the, place of the, on the face of the planet, including the Apostle Paul. This fascinating chain of events was triggered by a Sunday school teacher's concern for his boys. You see what I'm saying here? Never discount what God can do with a life. The way we change our community, the way we see a change in the world is by living completely open-handed and surrendering to Jesus and his plan. 
when the church is divided between political beliefs, racism, all these other things in the church, when it's divided by anything other than what Jesus wants us to be, is because the members are more worried about their own life than God's mission. When the church is, is, is effective, it's because the members are actively dying to their self to see the mission push forward. It's about his glory. It's about his renown. It's about his will. It's about his way. And it's not about mine and it's not about yours. It's about him. We are called to be followers of Christ. And if we stop following him, then if we stop, stop taking steps, then by definition, we're no longer following. So what steps this morning do you need to take? How long have you been exactly where you are spiritually? How long have you been right where you are? You may be dead in the dark today, and you know it. And you may not have known it until you came to this place this morning, but now you know that you've been spiritually blind, living off some sort of past experience of God or past experience with, with a church or a, a group or a, or a family. Or you, listen, God wants you to move in to where you are right now and, and His glory and His good for you right now. Have you experienced with Jesus before in your life where He has changed your life, where he, you've seen change where you once were this way, but now your heart and your life has changed to this? When you see God for who He is, listen, it changes everything about everything about everything. And we always say here that every spiritual problem that you face in your life is a result of a symptom of a view of God that's too small. And this morning, my prayer is that you would see God for who He is. So there's a story I want to end with today in Luke chapter 18. It's about a blind man. This blind man was, had been blind for many, many, many years. And Jesus was coming into town, and there was a commotion, and, and, his, and then this man couldn't see. He's like, he was asking his friends, what's happening? What's happening? I hear the commotion. What's going on? And and his friend says, be quiet. Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And then Jesus stops what he's doing, stops where he's going, stoops down and looks at this man and says, what do you want? What do you want? The man says, I want to see. I want to see. This morning, I don't know what you came in here for. I don't know why you're at church this morning, but I promise you the way that you come into a relationship with Jesus is you allow him to open your eyes by surrendering to him. Because there's people in this world, there's people in this city, there's people maybe in this room that have been blind to who Jesus is and thinking he's some kind of religious symbol in their life, but he's not. He's a real person. Let me tell you this morning, do you believe that Jesus can save you like he said he could? Because without him, you will not see eternity. He stands today with outstretched arms like in Matthew 11, and he says, come to me, all who are heavy burdened and wearisome, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke, but learn from me because I I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And this morning, I don't know where you're at, where you've been, where you've come from, but I can tell you this. Romans tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is why we need a Savior. That is why we need a Savior to come in. And that is what Jesus has done. And what it means is, it, is it, if anyone can, is believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says in Romans that they will be saved. And this morning, if you've been in this place, you've heard, you've heard the gospel, and you've, walked, you've heard these scriptures, you've heard the, the ramblings of a, of a crazy guy, you know, 
and God's maybe doing something in your heart, in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray, I'm going to ask you today, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus like Saul did, you know that today God is revealing to you your need for a Savior. And that right now, you know you need Jesus to be your Lord, the Lord of your life. And you know you need to make that statement. After I pray, I'm going to ask you to do something pretty bold. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and say, that's me today. So I want to pray. If that's you and you're saying, Jesus, I don't understand everything. I don't get the whole Bible, but I know I need you. I know I, I, I know I don't know everything about you, but I know you're, you've shown me through your word that I need you. If that's you today, I want you to make that statement today. And we want to celebrate with you. So let me pray for us and then we're going to do that. Father God, we love you. We praise you. I pray for this congregation right now in the name of Jesus. Father, that you would silence the voice of the enemy, Father, in anybody's heart. Father, that, that they know they need to take that step. God, they know that they need to, to enter into a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would move in a mighty way in someone's heart right now. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts. God, I pray that you would give them uh, the boldness to, to, to walk into to the presence of God this morning and say, Father, I surrender to you. Father, I know I've done wrong. God, my sin doesn't define me. God, your cross defines me. Father, Lord, I pray this morning that you would just open the gates this morning for those decisions to be made. Father, and if they're not, God, I pray this altar would be a place of safety and of, of, of reconciliation, God, and repentance. God, we love you. We praise you. You're the only thing that matters. You're the only one that deserves glory and honor, God, because we, we, we need you. So this morning, if anyone in this place knows that that's their next step and they want to make that decision today, would you please just lift your hand so we can pray with you? Obviously, we're gonna do we're gonna do one more song, and then um, this altar is open. This altar is a place of safety. Um, please come if you need prayer. There's people to pray with you as well. So.